The following resource is from Christ Community Church. For more information, please visit lovinglord.org. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to have your word like this. We thank you for giving this incredible vision to John, for having him write it down, inspired by your Holy Spirit, and for giving us the opportunity to come together today to study it, to meditate on it, and by your grace to press what this vision means into our hearts and into our minds. Please do that for us this morning. Help us each to worship you well by listening attentively to your word, by striving with all of our might to understand what it says, and then by seeking to be transformed by it. We know we're completely dependent on you to do that. I pray that you would make this passage clear, help me to teach it clearly and accurately. I pray, Father, that you would be pleased to sanctify us during this time. I pray, Father, that you would cause us to understand what this future is, dwelling with you, the perfection of your presence with us. I pray, Father, that we would move our hearts rightly and that we would know with certainty that that future is ours. If that's not ours right now, Father, I pray that you would make it ours this morning, that we would know for sure that that future that John envisions here in Revelation 21 is our future. Please, Father, let there not be a single person that walks out of this room today without knowing that this is their future. We pray that you would do this for your glory and out of your love for us. It's in your name. Amen. You know, I'm very thankful I don't have a job that requires me to travel much. Most of you in this room have probably traveled away from loved ones at some point, either for work or for school or vacation. And some of you I know actually have family members or friends that don't live nearby. And so, you know, you probably, I think it's safe to say that all of us have experienced what it's like to miss people that we care about, to miss their presence. And the interesting thing is that even with all of the amazing technology that we have today to stay in touch with people over long distances, even with the ability to, to FaceTime people and to see their face in front of you and to hear their voice, we still miss them. We still long to experience their presence in a more complete way. It's not that they're not present at all. They are in a digital fashion, perhaps. But if you love them, you're not going to be satisfied with that. You're not going to be satisfied with anything less than the full experience of their immediate presence. The question for you this morning is, is how is that with God? How is that with God for you? Do you miss him like that? Do you long for him like that? It's not that he's not present in your life right now. If, if you're a follower of Jesus, he is present with you in a remarkable way. You're, his Holy Spirit is dwelling with you and in you. But do you find your heart still aching for more? To be with your dearest loved one, the lover of your soul, in the most complete way you can. That's what John sees here in Revelation 21. The new Jerusalem is a picture of God dwelling with his people in the most full way possible. The most full way possible. That's what this passage is all about. It's the perfection of God's presence with his people. No more FaceTime, just his face. Him with us and us with him forever. I still want that to be my future. I still want that to be your future today. More than I want anything else for you, I want the new Jerusalem to be the end of your story. That city is the city of God's people, and that city is the city of God's presence. And we're going to see both of those things today. Those are the two points of the sermon today that are going to come out of this incredible vision of John's in Revelation 21. First, we'll see that this new Jerusalem is the city of God's people. And second, we'll see that this city is the city of God's presence. God's people and God's presence. Point number one, the city of God's people. We're at the very end of the end now. The end of history's ending, 
the end of Revelation's ending and the end of the Bible's ending. In fact, I have one of the Pew Bibles up here with me today, and it's literally, the passage goes on the last page of the Bible. We're at the very end of the end here. Satan, the beast, the false prophet, all of those who have lived in rebellion against God, even death and Hades, they've all been thrown into the lake of fire. So at long last, evil has been defeated once and for all. And then in chapter 21, John sees the new creation. And in verses 2 through 3, you can look at it again, Revelation 21. He says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for a husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. God's dwelling with his people, and there's no more crying, there's no more pain, there's no more death. And then in last week's passage, we saw that he made all things new. That those who conquer, those who persevere to the end and conquer sin will become God's children and they'll have their thirst quenched by the spring of the water of life without payment. But that all of those who continue to practice sin will perish in the lake of fire. And then today, in verse 9, John revisits the topic of the new Jerusalem. It's recapitulated as are many topics in the book of Revelation that we've been seeing now over the past many weeks. Verse 9, you can look it out with me. John says in verse 9, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues. Remember, there were three different judgment cycles in Revelation. The first was the seven seals, then the seven trumpets, and then the seven bowls. And this is one of the angels who had the seven bowls. And John says, This angel spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. The angel says to John, I'll show you the bride. I'll show you Jesus' wife. But then he takes John away and shows him a city. It's a little strange, isn't it? How is the city, Jesus' bride. In similar way that one scholar put it, I think the city symbolizes the eternal state of God's people. The new Jerusalem symbolizes the eternal state of God's people dwelling with him. And what an incredible state it is. In fact, perhaps in this passage, what makes the wife of the Lamb so radiant and so beautiful is the perfection of God's presence with her and in her. John says he saw, verse 10, the holy city, it's holy, it's set apart for God, coming down out of heaven from God. Like one of the commentators pointed out, we're not just talking here about a mere reconstruction of the earthly Jerusalem. This Jerusalem is, as John says, coming down out of heaven from God. It is a new Jerusalem. It is a heavenly Jerusalem. And the city is described as, verse 11, having the glory of God. Its radiance is like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Now I think the glory of God here is actually God's presence. You know, when we talk about God dwelling somewhere, or we talk about the glory of God dwelling somewhere, we mean that God is dwelling there. We're going to circle back to that verse a little bit later. But John continues to describe the city, verse 12. He says, It had a great high wall with 12 gates. Try to envision this in your mind. And at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, there were three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. So the New Jerusalem has great high walls. 
That's the same way John describes the mountain, by the way. Great and high. And the high walls, she could probably guess, symbolize security and safety. I don't try to ask what enemies this heavenly city would have to fear. We're not supposed to take these images literally. In the new creation, of course, there are no enemies to fear. But remember, the city is a picture of the eternal state of God's people. And so the walls, the high walls, the great and high walls, signify security. In fact, there's three qualities that we're going to see these different images reinforcing again and again throughout this passage. Security, splendor, and size. Security, splendor, and size. I picked three S's, so it should be easier for you to remember. For example, verse 12 says, The city had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels. These angelic gatekeepers, they convey the security of the city and the splendor of the city. Between the walls and the angels, what you have is an impenetrable city. But notice something very important about the gates. Verse 12. On the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. The 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. You remember the 12 tribes of Israel, right? The story of Israel starts with Abraham, a man that God chose from all the people of the earth. He singled him out, and he promised to make Abraham into a great nation, a nation that he would bless and that he would make a blessing to the world. And that promised blessing, of course, was inherited by Abraham's son Isaac, and then by Isaac's son Jacob, who was later renamed Israel. And Israel, as you know, had 12 sons. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. And it was the descendants of those 12 sons that became the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. Ephraim and Manasseh, the sons of Joseph, they actually became two separate tribes, and eventually the tribe of Benjamin was combined with Judah. But Israel was a nation of 12 tribes, and those 12 tribes descended from the 12 sons of Israel. They are God's elect or chosen people, the recipients of God's promises. And verse 12 says that the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed, they're written there, on the gates of the new Jerusalem. What does that mean? Almost simply, I think it means that this is Israel's city. Perhaps we're to infer, as one scholar suggested, that each tribe has its own place in the city, like the way that each tribe had its own allotment in the promised land. Regardless, we can tell that this is the city of Israel. This is the city of God's chosen people. Jerusalem, you probably know, was the capital city of Israel. If you remember, after the nation of Israel had settled in the promised land, and after they had established themselves as a kingdom, first under Saul and then under David, we know from 2 Samuel 5 that King David took the city of Jerusalem from the Jebusites and decided to reign there as king. He called it the city of David, and it became the capital of the nation, the capital of Israel, God's people. And here we see that the new Jerusalem has the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel inscribed on it. This is Israel's city. But then in verse 14, we come to another set of names. 12 names. Verse 14, the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So on the gates of the city, you have the names of the 12 sons of Israel. And then on the foundations, you have the names of the 12 apostles. This might be referring to the city's foundation stones. As far as how this looks, a couple of the suggested possibilities were that the stones are all stacked up on, on top of each other, or perhaps that there's a, a different stone for different sections of the city. Regardless of, of how it looked in John's vision, the point is that on the city's foundation stones are the names of the apostles. One commentator said, quote, this is probably a corporate reference to the disciple group of Jesus without specific reference to Judas. 
You know, obviously, when we think of the 12 disciples, Judas was one of them, but this is probably not, you know, this is probably just a, a reference to the early followers of Jesus as a group. That small group of 12 people that Jesus gathered around him during his earthly ministry, and then after his resurrection, commissioned them to be his witnesses or his messengers. Now, if their names are on the foundation stones, that means the entire city rests on them, in a sense. It rests on the work of the apostles, or perhaps on the testimony of the apostles. It's fair to say, I mean, both of those statements would be true. We know historically that the church owes its existence in large part to the work of the apostles testifying to the good news. But we could also say, just as truthfully, that it is the gospel testimony of the apostles that is the city's foundation, that is the bedrock of the city. But one interesting thing to note is that in this passage and throughout the rest of this section that actually runs into Revelation 22, Jesus is consistently called the Lamb. He's consistently referred to as the Lamb, and the apostles here are identified as apostles, not of Jesus, but of the Lamb, who of course is Jesus. They are those who are sent by the Lamb. They are those who testify to the Lamb. This is the same Lamb that we saw back in Revelation 5. This Lamb who looked as though it had been slain and who the living creatures and the 24 elders fell down and worshipped, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Indeed, it is the blood of the Lamb that built this new Jerusalem. You know, sometimes we talk about somebody's work, or perhaps we could talk about a city being built on blood, sweat, and tears. The new Jerusalem, that heavenly city, was built on the blood, sweat, and tears of Jesus. Apart from the Lamb's atoning blood, nobody whether they're a descendant of Israel or not, is clean enough to be a part of this holy city where God's presence dwells. This multi-ethnic people of God was built by the blood of the Lamb. Jesus, the Lamb, he built the city not by taking a hammer and nails into his hand, but by receiving hammered nails into his hands. He built this city with the wood of the cross. And his sacrifice, as the living creature said in Revelation 5, ransom people from every tribe and language and people and nation. It is the Lamb's blood that can wash you white as snow and make you holy so that you can actually dwell in the presence of God like priests. This is the good news the apostles spread. And as a result, their names are on the city's foundation stones. There is no other foundation upon which the new Jerusalem can be built. There's no other foundation to support the eternal state that that city symbolizes, the dwelling of God with his people. So for you, that means that if you want to be part of the city, you have to be established on that apostolic foundation. That means, in effect, you must be established on the gospel they spread. Now, the picture of God's people here is, is quite remarkable. You have one city, and on that city you have the names of Israel's sons inscribed on the gates, but at the same time you have the names of the apostles on the foundation stones. So it raises the question, whose, whose city is this? Is this the city of Israel? Or is this the city of the apostolic church? There is only one city in John's vision, which means that there is only one people of God dwelling with God. Now, we might attempt to explain this by saying that the apostolic church is the true people of God, and the church consists of both Jews, Israelites, and non-Jews, or Gentiles. And that wouldn't be wrong to say, but 
I think a more biblical perspective would emphasize Israel, properly understood, as the one true people of God. Israel is God's chosen people. They are the people of promise. And the new Jerusalem is Israel's city. Its name is Jerusalem. However, as Paul talks about in Romans 9, quote, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Just because you're a physical descendant of Abraham does not mean you will share in God's promises to Abraham. Instead, Paul says in Galatians 3, it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. It is faith in Jesus that characterizes membership in God's chosen people, Israel. By faith, you're like a branch that's cut off from one tree and grafted into the tree of God's people, Israel. So this heavenly city of Israel, this new Jerusalem, it can be your city too. It can be your city through faith in Jesus. The question, of course, is, is it your city? Do you stand on the foundation stones of the apostles? Do you believe the testimony of the apostles, which is the good news? And have you truly confessed your sins to God and turned away from them? Have you trusted in the crucified and risen lamb to make you holy? If so, then you are part of the true Israel and the new Jerusalem is your city. If not, then you're a part of Babylon. That's not the city that you want to belong to. In fact, in this passage, John is actually setting up an intentional contrast between the city of Babylon and the city of the new Jerusalem. There's an intentional contrast here between the great prostitute and the bride of the Lamb. Here's why I say that. Look at verses 9 through 10 again. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. And that city, of course, is later described in this passage with imagery of gold and jewels and pearls. Now listen to the introduction of the whore back in Revelation 17. It wasn't that long ago. Revelation 17. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came, same kind of angel, possibly the exact same angel, and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality. The angel says, Come, I will show you. But it's not the bride, it's the prostitute. Verse 3, And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. So John is carried away somewhere in the spirit. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. So he sees a woman in verse 4, the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. What John sees back in Revelation 17, the beast, or sorry, the city of Babylon, it's described with very similar imagery of prosperity. I think the correspondence between these two passages is too great to be a coincidence. What we have here for us at the end of the book is a picture painted of two very different cities. And both of these cities have two very different outcomes. Babylon is a city from below and it is destroyed in the lake of fire. Jerusalem is a city from above. It is established forever in safety. Notice there is no third city. In fact, I think one person said that Revelation in some ways could be described as a tale of two cities. The question for you is which city do you belong to? 
And I'll urge you this morning, be part of the new Jerusalem. That's the city you want to belong to. Leave everything here to be part of that city. Sacrifice everything. Set your sights on that city and persevere in faith on your way to that city, whatever the cost might be. Why? Well, not only because the other city ends in the lake of fire, but because the state that's symbolized by this city is glorious beyond description. This city is the city of God's presence. That takes us to our second point, point number two, the city of God's presence. There's an amazing connection in this passage that you may have missed. I just read verse 10. Let me read it again. John says in verse 10, The angel carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem. So John is transported in the spirit for revelatory purposes, and he's brought in his vision to a high mountain. Now mountains in scripture are a location where God gives revelation. Think, for example, of Moses on Mount Sinai. But there's a specific mountain revelation that is very closely connected to John's back in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel was an Old Testament prophet who prophesied during the time the Jews were exiled under Babylon. And in Ezekiel 40, Ezekiel is also brought in a vision to a very high mountain. And in his vision, he sees, quote, a man whose appearance was like bronze with a linen cord and a measuring reed in his hand. And then this person begins to take measurements of the temple in Ezekiel's vision. The same thing happens here. Verse 15, John says, The one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. And then he starts measuring the city. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. What's going on? Ezekiel sees a temple being measured in his vision. John sees a city being measured in his vision. What John is seeing is the fulfillment of Ezekiel's prophecy. The temple, follow me on this, the temple is the city. The temple is the place where God's presence dwelled. And here, John sees that the city is that place. There's something even more amazing, though, and it's revealed to us in the measurements itself. Verse 16, the city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. 12,000 stadia. First of all, that is huge. One stadium converts to roughly 607 feet. So this is roughly 1,380 miles. Now we're not sure if the 12,000 stadia is the perimeter of the whole city or if it's just the length of one of the sides. Either way, it's huge. It's huge regardless. To put that in perspective for you, the distance from San Diego, California to Vancouver in Canada, which is just north of the Canadian border, if you were to fly, it's less than 1,200 miles. This is over 1,300 miles. So this length is referring to one side of the city. Imagine a single city that spans a greater distance than San Diego to Canada. That's the size of the New Jerusalem. What John is seeing is massive, breathtaking. But of course, we're not meant to take the number literally. Remember, security, splendor, size. Security, splendor, size. This image conveys both the splendor of the city and obviously its enormous size. If the city represents God's dwelling with his people, which I believe it does, we know, of course, that the totality of the new creation will be the dwelling place of God. So perhaps the massive size of the city is fulfilled in the new creation, in all of creation. But maybe you also picked up on how the 
figure 12,000 stadia, it's 1,000 times 12, right? 12 is the number of the people of God or the number of Israel. And so this number is probably connected to the idea that this city we're seeing symbolizes the eternal state of the people of God, of the true Israel. However, what may be the most important and perhaps the most amazing detail about the measurement of the city is the fact that it's symmetrical. Verse 16, it says the city's length and width and height are equal. All the measurements are equal. Even the height, which is a crazy picture. I mean, think about what John's seeing. You, you see the distance of the city, right? San Diego to Canada. But the height is equal to the length and the width. So the picture is stunning, but even more significantly, what, what does that mean? Right? It means the city that John is seeing is a cube, which is kind of a weird thing at first. But what else in the Bible is shaped like a cube? Do you remember? 1 Kings chapter 6. We read about Solomon's construction of the temple. And it says in verse 19, The inner sanctuary, the holiest of holies, Solomon prepared in the innermost part of the house to set the ark of the covenant of Yahweh. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high. 20 by 20 by 20. It was a cube. And then he overlaid it with pure gold. Verse 21, And Solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold. The inner sanctuary, the most holy place, where the Ark of the Covenant was put. Remember, the Ark of the Covenant was the seat of God's presence. It's where the glory of God resided. That inner sanctuary was shaped like a cube. And here what John sees is the new Jerusalem shaped like a cube. That means, like one scholar put it, that the entire enormous city is the holiest of holies. The whole city is where God's presence dwells in a most full way. And like this person said, if the size is meant to be realized in the entirety of creation, then it means that the whole universe will be like the inner sanctuary. The New Jerusalem means that all the people of God will experience the full, radiant presence of our holy God, totally uninhibited. In verse 10, John said, The angel showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. When it says it had the glory of God, like I mentioned earlier, I think that means it had the presence of God. Just like God's glory resided in the most holy place of the temple, now God's glory resides in the new Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem has the glory of God. The glory of God is no longer confined to a heavily restricted inner sanctuary that's accessible only to the high priest and that only on one day a year, the Day of Atonement. Instead, it's experienced by all of God's people all the time in all of the new creation. The glory of God, the manifestation of his presence, it appears here in John's vision like a light-giving body. That might be a more literal translation of the word that the ESV translates radiance. It's actually a, uh, a luminary of some kind. And that light-giving body is described like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Or perhaps better translated, as one person put it, shine like crystal, or perhaps sparkling like crystal. This light-giving body, it's like a jasper, which is a very interesting jewel to compare it to, because back in Revelation 4, the one who was seated on the throne was also described as having, quote, the appearance of jasper. This light-giving body that's sparkling or shining like a jewel is the glory of God. It's the manifestation of God's presence, and the new Jerusalem has it. Ezekiel, again, 
saw something similar himself back in Ezekiel 43. And of his vision, he said, Behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east, and the earth shone with his glory. It was like a light-giving body. Verse 4, as the glory of Yahweh entered the temple by the gate facing east, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of Yahweh filled the temple. And here we see that the glory of Yahweh has filled the temple, which is the entire city, the new Jerusalem. Verse 11, the city has the glory of God, its light-giving body like a most rare jewel, like a jasper shining as crystal. The imagery of the city is just, it's saturated with this theme of God's presence there. We read earlier in verse 12, on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, on the west three gates. In Ezekiel 48 at the very end of the book, you had a chance to hear part of the passage read at the very beginning of the service today. Ezekiel himself prophesies about a city that also has three gates on the north and the east and the south and the west. And each gate is also named after ones of the sons of Israel. But do you remember the last verse of that section? Which is actually the very last verse of the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel 48.35 The name of the city from that time on shall be Yahweh is there. This is the city where Yahweh is. This is the city that has the glory of God, the manifestation of God's presence. Notice also the measurement of the walls. Verse 17. The angel measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. In other words, it's a regular human cubit that's being used. And whether it's the thickness of the wall or the height of the wall, we don't know. Either way, the number is is symbolic, of course. 144, 12 times 12. Again, you have the number for God's people. Symbolic significance probably connects us to this idea of God's people. Uh, that this, or that this, uh, uh, it's connected to, to, uh, to God's people. And of course, the, the walls signify security. However, did you see what the walls were made of? Verse 18. It says the wall was built of jasper. There it is again, jasper. Well, the city was pure gold like clear glass. There's Jasper again, the jewel to which the appearance of God or the manifestation of his presence was likened earlier. And so we can say, I think, that the walls of the city, they also reflect and reveal God's presence. But then it says that the whole city was pure gold like clear glass. It's an amazing thing to imagine, first of all but it should remind you of Solomon's temple, right? The inside of which, as you just heard, was overlaid with pure gold. But this gold is so pure, John says, it is clear like glass. Clear is actually the same word for pure here in Greek. It's hard to tell exactly what the comparison is. One suggestion was that this gold is free of impurities the way that clear glass is is free of opaqueness. But what we know is that the purity of the gold here is top-notch. And the whole city is made of it. The whole city is God's temple. And amazingly, it's also where God's people live. The gold, I think, also reflects something of the splendor of that eternal state. As do the foundation stones. Scholar Robert Moundstone in his commentary that, quote, In ancient times, as today, precious stones were desirable for their beauty and scarcity. He then points out that the various stones mentioned in the Bible are hard to identify with any exactness because of the many different species and colors, as well as the lack of a standard terminology. It's hard to tell exactly what these stones that we see here in Revelation 21 correspond to the stones that we know of today. That's it. Let's look at the description in verses 19 through 20. And I'll read Mounts' potential description of the stones as we come across them here. In verse 19, you can turn your attention to the text. John says, The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. Now, since each foundation stone is likely made of one of these jewels, I think a better translation that one person suggested was that the foundation stones were made beautiful with every kind of jewel, rather than just adorned 
with Joel. So continuing on, the first foundation stone was jasper, which we've already seen. Mount's description, I'll read this to you after each one, quote, a translucent rock, crystal clear, or sorry, crystal green in color. The second foundation stone, sapphire, quote, a deep blue stone with spangles of iron pyrite, the modern lapis lazuli. The third, agate, or chalcedony, quote, chalcedony is usually taken as a green silicate of copper found near Chalcedon in Asia Minor. The fourth, emerald, another green stone. The fifth, onyx, or sardonyx, Quote, the sardonyx was a layered stone of red, sard, and white onyx. The sixth, carnelian, a blood-red stone and commonly used for engraving. The seventh, chrysolite, that may have been a yellow topaz or golden jasper. The eighth, beryl, a green stone. The ninth, topaz, a greenish gold or yellow. The tenth, chrysoprase, there was no description for that one, but another source suggested it was green. The 11th, jacinth, quote, bluish purple and similar to the modern sapphire. And then lastly, the 12th, amethyst, a purple quartz. When you step back, what you see is a foundation of huge stones, rich in color. And these stones are precious, costly, beautiful jewels. This splendor is just absolutely staggering. It's a vision that ought to take our breath away. And for John's Jewish audience, the 12 jewels with the names of the apostles may have hearkened them back to the 12 jewels with the names of Israel worn on the breastpiece of the high priest. The stones then, they collectively represented the people of God. Maybe the stones are signifying the same thing here. Or perhaps they specifically represent the people of God, near God, or in God's presence, since the high priest wore those jewels in his service in the house of God. Verse 21. The twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. Okay, these gates would have had to be massive given the massive size of the, of the walls. And yet it says the gates are cut out of a single enormous pearl. The exquisite imagery is just over the top here. The city, it's, it's constructed with nothing but high value, rare, precious, costly materials. What we see is perfect splendor. Like one scholar suggested, perhaps the splendor of the city perfectly reflects the glory of God, making it a suitable temple, a suitable place for God's presence to dwell. Some translations think that this street specifically refers to the main street of the city, which was also paved with gold of the most extreme purity. It's possible, as as uh, one commentator suggested that you know, maybe we're meant to think of how God's people here are walking on gold like the priests used to walk on gold in the temple. Perhaps, perhaps. The New Jerusalem, it's the city where God dwells. The New Jerusalem is the city of God's presence. You can actually take a step back from John's vision and look at the storyline of the Bible and trace God's presence, God's dwelling with his people, all the way from creation to new creation. God walked in the garden in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve, but they disobeyed God and they lost the experience of his presence that they enjoyed. God chose to bless Israel. He dwelt with them in a tent in the wilderness that we call the tabernacle, and then his glory resided in the temple built by Solomon. On the first Christmas day, God stepped into creation as a man, born Jesus of Nazareth, who we call Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then upon his ascension, Jesus sent his Holy Spirit to dwell in and with the church. But the end state, 
The perfection of God's presence with his people, of God dwelling with man, is what we see here in Revelation 21. It is the new Jerusalem. It's that blissful, beautiful, eternal state of God dwelling with his people. That state of perfect splendor and security, the size or scope of which spans all of creation, never to be lost again. You want to be there. The new Jerusalem is the city of God's people, the true Israel, built on the foundation of the apostles of the Lamb. And it is the city of God's presence, where the shining glory of God takes up residence. In short, the new Jerusalem, it's a picture of God with his people, of God dwelling with his people perfectly. The city of God's people is the city of God's presence. Now for John's audience, hearing this in the face of severe persecution would have been a source of encouragement for them to persevere. You know, the new Jerusalem is is worth it, especially in contrast to the fate of the city of Babylon. That glorious state of dwelling with God and with his people, it's, it's worth it. In John's vision, it should capture our hearts. It should inspire us to persevere as well, whatever the cost might be. But for us, obviously, being a Christian here is not as difficult in many ways as it was for them. And so I want to focus on a different application here as we close. My biggest desire for you, obviously, is for you to be there. More than anything else that happens from the sermon, even if you forget what the symbolic imagery represents, I want you to walk away knowing that this future of God dwelling with his people perfectly is your future that the new Jerusalem is your city. And if that's not the case, I want you to be able to know that too so that you can step out of Babylon and step onto the foundation of the apostles in the new Jerusalem. Now listen, almost everybody in this room today looking around, if not everybody, thinks that this future is theirs. You think that. Maybe you're telling yourself, I've repented of my sins. I believed in Jesus. Many people think that they have. And we know from God's word that many will be horrified to come before the Lamb on that last day only to find that you will not be permitted to experience the new Jerusalem. That you will be cast out into the lake of fire instead. How can you know that won't be you? Here's how. The new Jerusalem symbolizes the end state of God's presence with his people. It is not the beginning of it. God's dwelling with you begins when you follow Jesus. So my question for you is this. Does God dwell with you now? Do you actually, not just say this, but do you actually experience the Holy Spirit's presence in your life? The Spirit's presence is not things working out well for you, by the way. That could just as easily be the devil. It's not a warm feeling inside. I have no idea what that is. It's not a magical sense of guidance or direction. The Holy Spirit's presence in our lives, it looks a lot of different ways, but the one that I want to focus on right now, I'm just going to touch on briefly here, is transformation. Transformation into the image of Jesus. The Spirit's presence in our life looks like love. It looks like joy. It looks like peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. But Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. But just take love. It's easy to say, I think, that you love God or that you love other people. Every single one of you in here who's a professing believer will say, yes, I love God. I love others. But ask yourself, do you really love? How much do you pray? How much do you serve others? How much do you hold your brothers and sisters accountable? How much do you share the good news? 
That'll tell you how much you love. If your answer to those questions is very little or not at all, then you should doubt that God really dwells in you. This is something we need to be honest with ourselves about, right? If you're not experiencing this inside-out transformation, then you need to beg God to send his spirit into your life to come and dwell with you now, to acknowledge your sin before God, to go wash yourself in the blood of the Lamb through faith, and then walk in obedience to him. Experience God's presence in you now. Only then can you experience the new Jerusalem, the perfection of his presence with you, with his people. Only if you have his presence now will you have his presence then. Will that future be your future? And man, what satisfaction will that bring? Just like being in the presence of your loved ones face to face after having to make do with FaceTime for too long, will be with him in the most complete way. You will finally be with the one who you are with now. You'll be with him forever. Let's pray right now that that would be the future for each one of us here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that we can only be part of your people, Israel, by standing on the foundation of the apostles. We know, Jesus, that you are the lamb who was slain for our sins so that we can become holy and enter your holy presence to dwell in the new creation, which is the holiest of holies. It's where you will dwell. We pray, Father, that each of us would examine our lives to see if you dwell with us now. And if not, Father, please cause us to be honest with ourselves and cause us to ask you into our life to step onto that foundation, to trust in you, Jesus, to believe the good news and to experience your spirit dwelling with us now. Cause us to see the fruit of your spirit's presence in our life now. Cause us to know that that future of dwelling with you perfectly is our future because we have you dwelling with us now. I pray, Father, that you would move us, you would move our hearts by this vision. That you would cause us to be willing to sacrifice everything in light of that eternal state that awaits us as your people. I pray, Father, that you would cause each of us to have assurance based on the real fruit in our lives that others can see as well that that future truly is ours. I pray that you would do that out of your love for us and for your glory. It's in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. Christ Community Church is a Reformed Baptist church in San Jose, California. If you'd like more information on our church, please visit lovinglord.org. From there, you can find service times, weekly gatherings, our sermon archive, and other resources. For video content, please visit our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you again for listening.